Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, recently, I learned something about the word Sabbath. If you take it apart um, by bits, it means uh, peace in the Lord's house. So I hope that there is peace here today. In John chapter 19, it says that after Jesus was arrested and he was put before Pilate, Jesus and Pilate had some conversation. In verse 37, Jesus says, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate responds, What is truth? According to the dictionary, truth is accuracy, sincerity, agreement with fact, the quality or state of being unimpaired, and moral soundness. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and I would like to hear your reply, see if we agree. Uh, Do we need to hear truth? Good, okay, and do we always like to hear truth? All right. Truth convicts our hearts and minds, and when we act act on the convictions, it causes change in our lives inwardly and outwardly. With a sermon title that is asking, Am I doing this to my Lord? I am hoping that the Holy Spirit will convict each of our hearts today and that we will make changes in our lives for the Lord. The truth we are going to hear about today is presumption. Now, that's, I mean, I think we all have heard that word before, presume, presumption. But I have not really heard it, um, I guess, in a spiritual context or a spiritual way. So that's what we're going to learn about today. Presumption is to assume something as true, to take for granted and to take advantage of. In the Bible, it uh, dictionary, it even gets deeper, proud, audacious, and defiant. Our conviction of this is to ask ourselves, am I doing this to my Lord? Am I taking him for granted? Am I taking advantage of him? Am I proud, audacious, defiant? The information that I'm going to bring to you today comes from the Bible and Ellen White And my first source was from this book, Christ's Way to Restoration by Philip Salmon. This is where it began, and then I looked into it further. Um, I understand he's going to be at camp meeting this year. I'm not sure what he's talking about or when he's talking, but um, you can have that reference. First, we're going to look at some examples from the Bible so we can get a little background on this. If you want to open to... Second Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses 15 to 21. This is talking about King Isaiah. And when we begin with verse 15, it gives you a little background as to who he was and what he did. It says, and he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him four score priests of the Lord. They were valiant men. And they withstood Isaiah the king and said unto him, It appears not unto thee, Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, 
that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Isaiah went was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priests, leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Isaiah the king was a leper until the day of his death, and dwelt in a several, several or separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Ellen White says in Prophets and Kings about King Isaiah, It's a living example of the folly of departing from a plain, thus saith the Lord. Neither his exalted position nor his long life service could be pleaded as an excuse for the presumptuous sin by which he marred the closing years of his reign and brought upon himself the judgment of heaven. The next one we're going to look at is from Genesis, chapter 19. And we're just going to look at two verses. This is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically about Lot's wife. Verses 17 and then 26. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for your life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And verse 26. But Lot's wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Patriarchs and prophets says, instead of thankfully accepting deliverance, Lot's wife presumptuously looked back to desire the life of those who had rejected the divine warning. Her sin showed her to be unworthy of life, for the preservation of which she felt so little gratitude. She adds, we should be aware of treating lightly God's gracious provisions for our salvation. And the last one we're going to talk about, we're not going to go there, but it's about Eli's sons, and we know that they were supposed to be priests. They didn't really act like it. Um, hurt a lot of people. In Patriarchs and Prophets, she says, Had they not been guilty of a presumptuous sin, a sin offering might have been presented for them. But their sins were so interwoven with their ministrations as priests of the Most High in offering sacrifice for sin The work of God was so profaned and dishonored before the people that no atonement could be accepted for them. So here we have examples of leprosy, which led to death. Lot's wife led to death. And Eli's sons, no atonement. That's probably about the worst, I think, that of the consequence for that presumptuous sin. Okay, now I'm going to go to the book and we'll bring it up to today's time. In one of the chapters, he's talking about one of the students he has, he had, and his student was going to present a really neat idea to him, and it was about salvation, so he's anxious to hear it. I waited for him to tell me what it was that he had in mind. He said smilingly, Love Jesus and do as I please. 
That's it in a nutshell, he asserted. It's really a win-win situation. Jesus is happy, and I am happy. He further explained. This way, he could be from, free from any restraint so that he could live by grace, not having to worry about obedience. Such notion freed him, he claimed, to enjoy worldly pleasures, knowing that Christ's unconditional love would cover his many sins. I told my student that I liked the first part of his catchphrase, but I questioned the second part. The problem was the I and do as I please. I simply wanted to replace the I with he so that it would read, I love Jesus and I do as he pleases. We do not live to please self, but to please the Savior. That doesn't mean we are against pleasure, but the genuine pleasure we seek is that which results from pleasing Jesus. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, Paul encourages the believers, because it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Later on in the chapter, he reflects back on the student. And he says, I cannot go further without looking again at my student's slogan, love Jesus and do as I please from a different angle. The perspective of sanctification I'm going to address was not at all in my student's mind. However, I wanted to redirect his mind to see things from a different light. I explained to him that Christian liberty is not license. Grace God entrusts us with is not there to encourage us to disobey. How could that be the case if the born-again Christian is dead to sin and alive unto Christ? We simply cannot indulge ourselves in what we are dead to. Yet it is true that if we are wholeheartedly converted in walking what Jesus as Enoch did, then naturally what pleases him pleases us, and what pleases us pleases him. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ and to be daily transformed into his likeness. We love what he loves and hate what he hates. Like him, we love righteousness and hate unrighteousness. My student realized afresh that there is more to our walk with Jesus than he originally thought. Our emphasis ought to be no tolerance to sinful practices, but always empowerment to grow in sanctification. This is what it means to be totally submissive to Christ. Covered with his robe of righteousness, we live his life. So there we have a better example. Um, The student realized what he was saying and um, understood. Later in the book, um, he has another example. Bobby had been committed to God and active in the youth program at the church he attended with his godly parents. Things seemed to be going quite well spiritually, and the future looked promising in his plan to become a minister. In his junior year of high school, he met a pretty girl with whom he soon became infatuated. She differed from him principles and values, yet her charm and flirtation won him over. To please her, he began to compromise the principles his parents had imparted to him from childhood. In stealing his heart, she also stole his virtue, his devotion to Christ, and his commitment to ministry. She became his bewitching idol, sacrificing his godly ideals at her altar. After a few weeks of this downward spiritual spiral, I felt impressed to visit him in his home and see if I could help in some way. He was gracious to see me, but adamant about the course he was taking. His life was his business, and he was choosing to live it the way he wanted. He was so blinded to any reasonable counsel I suggested as if he were in a different world. He couldn't see beyond the confines of the cage he was trapped in. He seemed to be willing to sacrifice anything or anyone at the shrine of his romantic sentiments. I encouraged him to reconsider his rebellious course from God and biblical principles. 
I also appealed to him to honor his loving God and godly parents and the moral values they had instilled in him. He abruptly dismissed everything I said by saying that his free choice to do whatever he pleased was his business. Someone had taught him that God was pleased and honored with any decision he, he would make, right or wrong, as long as he exercised his freedom of choice. The more he talked about his newly acquired idea, the more I sensed that he viewed free choice as a demigod to be worshipped. That the emphasis was on making a, de- a decision, but not on making the right decision. Here's his thinking. Nothing is wrong with making a wrong choice, he rationalized, as long as you make it even if it is a choice against God's word. For God is so unconditionally loving and accepting, regardless of anyone's disobedience, that he will always be near and will always bring us back to him at some point in the future. In the meantime, he wanted to have fun, living recklessly, presuming that God would work everything out for the good. Tragically, he and his girlfriend were killed in an automobile accident the following night while drinking and driving. Not all those who rebel against God come back. And God is not always near and cannot always be found. His responsible love never allows him to take a neutral stance when it comes to our decision-making. He cares enough to warn us to seek him now at this acceptable time. And compassionately, He pleads with us to return from our wayward ways. Repeating the definition for presumption. To assume something as true, to take for granted, to take advantage of, proud, audacious, and defiant. From desire of ages... She says, presumption is Satan's counterfeit of faith. And note this, and I'll repeat it because it's worth repeating. Faith claims God's promises and brings forth fruit in obedience. Presumption also claims the promises, but uses them as Satan does to excuse transgression. Again, faith claims God's promises and brings forth fruit in obedience. Presumption also claims promises, but uses them as Satan does to excuse transgression. She goes on, Often when Satan has failed of exciting distrust, he succeeds in leading us to presumption. If he can cause us to place ourselves unnecessarily in the way of temptation, he knows that victory is his. God will preserve all who walk in the path of obedience, but to depart from it is to venture on Satan's ground. So in all the examples that we looked at, each person had a choice, just as we have a choice every day to make right or wrong decisions. And we learn that presumption is is a choice that we make that leads to hard consequences and or even death. So we have to ask ourselves, Do my decisions only affect me, or do they ripple out to those around me? Could my presuming on God be a stumbling block for others? Shouldn't I be helping people to make right decisions for God? And as we go on, we'll we'll hear the answers to those questions. Here's some points that he brings out in the book about what presuming on God does. 
We deceive ourselves that we do not have to repent, for God will receive and support us anyway. We become emboldened by the misplaced sympathy and support of others to persist in our deliberate sinful behavior. These two things continue in cutting off the right concepts from real life. Consequently, we become devoid of God's transforming power to impact people's lives. He goes on to say, Today, willful sinners are so emboldened, they want others to not only love them, but to also sympathize with and approve of their sinful behavior. And these terms that you'll hear are are things that we hear today. This comes under the subtle guise of terms such as acceptance, support, and tolerance, and approval. They confuse unconditional love with unconditional acceptance and approval, saying if others don't approve and support their misguided behavior, they're not being loved. Here's a question. Would our loving and judicious God have compromised with Lucifer and his rebellious host for the sake of getting along or to secure appeasement? While showing his love, he also maintained his principles regardless of consequences knowing full well that this could bring about separation and war in heaven. It's rationalized that whatever evil is committed doesn't matter anyway, for God is so generous in his love that he'll overlook any transgression. This flippant attitude towards God's love and obedience to his law sets a dangerous example to others. One of Satan's great deceptions is to keep people from loving obedience to God. Satan deceives many with the plausible theory that God's love for his people is so great. He will excuse sin in them. The unconditional pardon of sin never has been and never will be. Such pardon would show the abandonment of the principles of righteousness, which are the very foundation of the government of God. God pleads with us to seek him while he may be found and while he is near, clearly implying that he may not always be found or near. This chance is greatly jeopardized by clinging to our stubborn rebellion. But this needn't be if we repent and separate ourselves from our sinful ways. On the condition that we earnestly heed his counsel, he will pardon and restore us to himself. So our scripture reading was, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. When God gives his warnings, he always offers a hope and a way of escape, if we choose to walk in it. In the book of Joshua, chapters 5, 6, and 7, it talks about a man named Achan. And I'll just condense the story a little bit. It's about the time when the people are marching around the city of Jericho. And um, there is a command that's given that, when they enter the city, no one is to take anything that is devoted to other gods. Well, as you move along in the chapters, we find out that Achan took some of those things that he wasn't supposed to, but he didn't admit to it right away. It took a while. And after he was caught, then he confessed to Joshua that he had taken those things. His life was ended by stoning and then burning. From Testimonies, Volume 3, we're told, There are those among us who will make confessions, as did Achan, too late to save themselves. They are not in harmony with right. They despise the straight testimony that reaches the heart and would rejoice to see everyone silenced who gives reproof. 
We have a promise in John three sixteen and 17, as I'm sure you could quote with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For us not to perish, we must put our confidence in Christ, trust in him, die to self, and abide in him. Whenever we are faced with making determinative decisions, let's decide not for the sake of deciding, but decide for the right reasons. Daily choices and daily decisions, these are the things that determine our destinies forever. If we want God to bless us and give us abundant life, we must decide to love him wholeheartedly, which leads us to follow and obey him. Testimonies, Volume 1, says, The most profitable meetings are for spiritual advancement are those which are characterized with solemnity and deep searching of heart. Each seeking to know him or herself and earnestly in deep humility seeking to learn Christ. And I would add that daily we would want to abide with Jesus. And let's go to John chapter 15, verses 4 to 8. And you'll hear the phrase, bear much fruit, as we learned that what real faith is. John chapter 15, verses 4 to 8. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that each of us search our hearts, confess and repent of any way, that we are sinning against you. May we realize how lethal presuming on you is and decide to make decisions that would honor, bring honor and glory to you. Help us look at our lives and how we are living both inwardly and outwardly and be convicted to make changes so we will not be stumbling blocks to others and that we, we can receive your full blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14. Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer.